Okay, we're going to read two readings. Um, the first reading is from Kings, Second Kings that John will focus on. We will read that and then we'll read uh, another section from the New Testament. So turn to Second Kings chapter 6. We'll read the first episode in chapter 6, six verses. The company of the prophets said to Elisha, Look, the place where we meet with you is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan where each of us can get a pole and let us build a place there for us to meet. And he said, Go. Then one of them said, Won't you please come with your servants? I will, Elisha replied. And he went with them. They went to Jordan and began to cut down trees. As one of them was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. Oh no, my lord, he cried out. It was borrowed. The man asked, where did it fall? When he showed him the place, Elisha cut a stick and threw it there and made the iron float. Lift it out, he said. Then the man reached out his hand and took it. Our second reading comes from First Timothy, chapter three, starting at verse fourteen, and just rolling over into the next chapter. good that I've got a paper Bible up here because I flick to it, which gives everyone enough time. Okay. Picking it up, chapter 3 at verse 14. This is Paul speaking. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, has, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. The Spirit clearly says that in the latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Thank you, Tim, for reading. And uh, I'd like to have a prize. I don't think I do have a prize, but I'd like to have a prize for anyone who can work out the connection between those two readings by the time we're finished. Um, I think there is a connection and a very important one, but I, let's, let's see if we can see it. 
And, uh, but now I would like you, uh, please, to turn uh, in your Bible to 2 Kings chapter 6, the first of those readings. This curious little story. And as we turn our attention to this part of the scriptures, let's pray together. You remember how the Lord Jesus said to his contemporaries, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that as we pay attention to the scriptures now, we may learn of Jesus, come to Jesus, and receive the true life that he gives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, uh, as you've gathered from everything that's been said this morning, and some of you have experienced, we've been dipping into this uh, rather unfamiliar book, I think, among most of us, uh, this Old Testament book of two kings, with what must seem at first to be a surprising purpose. I've been suggesting that this book is in the Bible to help us to understand the truth about our troubled world. Now, the book is actually about what had gone wrong in the nation of Israel in the 9th through the 6th centuries BC, a long, long time ago. And a lot went wrong for that nation. But what I hope we've been at least beginning to see is that the Bible as a whole teaches us that what went wrong in Israel is what has gone wrong with the whole world, our world. And we are living in a time, we find ourselves in a time when what has gone wrong is making itself acutely felt in the confusions, the conflicts, the anxieties, the outrages that are is this, is this putting it too strongly? But I, I think that are tearing our societies apart. It's certainly not too much to say in the US. Uh, not too much to say in the UK. It might depend a little bit on where you live, how much these things are felt in Australia at the moment. Um, we seem to lag behind the, less, the rest of the world in, uh, by a few years in, a number of, in the number of kind of things. I mean, we're way ahead in other things, of course. But, we, but, but there, there does seem to be a kind of time lag, and I'm sort of happy often that there is a time lag when, when, when things are happening. And you've sort of got time, if you live in Australia, to think it through before it arrives. But I do think that all of us recognise that our world is a troubled world, in particular ways these days, deeply so. Now, we're turning in this strange way to this ancient book, this book of two kings, and uh, I've been suggesting that we, we, we ought to be expecting to get some help in understanding the troubled world in which we live. I'm not suggesting, of course, that these brief studies are going to give us all the answers, so now we know how to think about everything, how we know how to respond to everything, now we know what to... Of course not. But we're learning a perspective. We're learning a way of getting things into focus, a way to make sense of what's going on that can help us, I believe, not to be overwhelmed by the complexity of it all, not to be confounded by the confusion, not to find ourselves despairing 
nor simply being swept along by the tidal wave of change that is sweeping our troubled world. That's not a good idea, to be simply swept along by it. If you'd like to think um, further about what's going on in today's world and what it means to be a Christian believer aware of these things, I want to warmly recommend the book that is mentioned on your notes uh, in the booklet there. I'm not sure whether it's on the uh, bookstore. I meant to have a look. Can anyone tell me whether it's there, the bad guy's book? It is there? Okay. Well, those, whatever copies are there should disappear very quickly, I hope. Uh, it's a little book by Stephen McAlpine called Being the Bad Guys. The title itself is it's worth buying it just for the title. If you don't like reading whole books, no, but the book itself is even better than the title. But he's got this title, Being the Bad Guys, How to Live for Jesus in a World that Says You Shouldn't. That captures the mood of our times quite well, doesn't it? How to live for Jesus in a world that says you shouldn't. Well, now, at the heart of what we've been learning uh, so far is this, that the truth about Israel in those far-off days and also the truth about our troubled world can be summed up in these words that we found in Romans chapter 1 yesterday. Claiming to be wise, that's our world, people think they are so clever, but they have become fools exchanging, this is the foolishness, exchanging the glory and the goodness of God for something else. And therefore God gave them up. Now this morning I've chosen uh, the brief story at the beginning of the sixth chapter of Two Kings that may have well have puzzled you. It puzzles most of us. I think it puzzles all Bible readers really, this little story. Um, uh, it's um, perplexing, certainly perplexing to me. It's a story about, you know, you saw what it was about. It's a story about an iron axe head that floated. Actually, the old translations are, are, are rather intriguing. An iron axe head that was made to swim. That's how it's put. The, uh, the old King James Version in verse 6 says, and the iron did swim. I like that. Now, our problem with this little story, of course, as you listen to it, our problem is not of whether such things are possible. That, that, that's not the problem. Of course such things are possible. All sorts of things are possible. If God can heal the leprosy of that foreign general in an instant, as we saw in 2 Kings chapter 5 yesterday, then he can certainly make a piece of iron float to the surface of the water. That's not the problem. What puzzles us, isn't this right? What puzzles us is the, ins- is the apparent insignificance of this incident. It seems so trivial. Why would you bother recording that in the Bible? I mean, you can see how the, the healing of Naaman's leprosy was a marvellous display of the power and the goodness and the kindness and the mercy of God, the one God in all the earth, bringing this important foreigner to understand that the God that he encountered in Israel is the one God in all the earth. And indeed, you read, it, you read later on in 2 Kings chapter 6, and we hear about the same mighty power of God protecting his people from terrifying enemies, it, it, absolutely stunning displays of God's goodness and power and kindness. Why, we wonder, in the middle of all this, is our attention turned briefly from these big events to this odd little story about a floating axe head? So you notice the title I've given to our study this morning is An Important, Unimportant Story. Where we are, we're back in Israel again. 
uh, one day in about 850-something BC. And we need to understand that it's a difficult time. Uh, Strange new ideologies are sweeping through the country. There is unrest and there is division. Uh, There's also the threat of war. And on top of all that, there is a famine in the land. People are desperately short of food. They are troubled days. Okay, that's that's the setting. Which adds, I think, to the puzzle of our little story at the beginning of 2 Kings 6. It's like, I mean, you can't eat a, an axe head, can you? You're living in times like, why, what, well, let's follow the story carefully and uh, prepare to be surprised. It begins with, one, a good problem to have and a straightforward solution. In verse 1, we meet a group of people called the sons of the prophets. Uh, in, in, in my version here in the ESV, the NIV, I think, has the company of the prophets. Verse 1, and you know I'm, I'm reading the ESV and I apologise for any differences, but I don't think that they're too confusing. Uh, chapter 6, verse 1, Now the sons of the prophets said to Elijah, to Elisha, the sons of the prophets, they, they were not literally the prophets' children, Uh, They were people in Israel who listened to the prophets, the prophets Elijah and then later Elisha. They were people who recognised the importance of what they heard from these prophets. We could call them disciples. And if you do your homework and read all the bits of two kings that we are passing over, you'll notice that there were groups of these disciples in various places around the country. Earlier on, Elijah and now Elisha would visit these places and the disciples would gather together and they would sit before the prophet and he would teach them. Uh, Their numbers weren't huge. Uh, On an earlier occasion, there were about a 100 in a gathering like this sitting before Elisha in Gilgal uh, near the Jordan River back in chapter 4, verse 38. This is probably the same group, I think. But on this day, they said to Elisha, you see what they said in verse 1, see, the place where we dwell under your charge, um, I think that could be better translated, uh, I think, where we sit before you, is too small for us. The number of those meeting together under Elisha's teaching in this little place and care had outgrown the shelter in which they gathered. And uh, so we can picture them. Uh, crammed in, sitting before the man of God, faithful disciples, learners, needing more room. Well, that's a good problem to have, isn't it? Mind you, this was no revival. The growth in numbers was not huge. And the solution to their space problem was simple enough. They said to Elisha in verse 2, let's go to the Jordan and each of us get a log and let us make a place for us to, 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 to sit there. Let's have a working bee, they said. Uh, it won't take long if we all pitch in. You know, that's how working bees work. Uh, it won't take us long to put, put together a new and, and, and larger place for our meetings down there in the Jordan Valley where there's plenty of timber. Sounds straightforward. And Elisha could see the good sense of this, and he responded. Uh, he was one of those men, you know, those men that are men of few words, I think, Elisha. Uh, When he had a lot of words to say, they were really important words, but most of the time he just said things like this, go. (laughs) Now let's think about this first point for a moment. A good problem to have and a straightforward solution. 
You see, the opportunity to sit before God's prophet was clearly important to these faithful believers. We don't know how many of these gatherings took place throughout Israel. Uh, We don't know how often they were able to sit before Elisha. Uh, Some years earlier, God had assured Elijah, that's Elisha's predecessor, that there were 7,000 in Israel who had not fallen for the Baal fad. But that was still a relatively small number in the whole nation. But I tell you, it's a lot better than zero. And you know, some of the time, it felt like there weren't any. I wonder if you've ever felt like that in Australia. It sort of feels like there aren't any Christians, aren't any believers Actually, that's what it felt like for Elijah once. If you read the story in 1 Kings chapter 19, that's how he he got to that point of feeling, I'm the only one left. But these humble gatherings that were scattered around the country, meeting in, sounds like log huts or something like that, here and there throughout the land, where the word of God was taught by God's prophet, I've got no doubt that these gatherings were spiritually rich. Those who came along to these meetings knew. These were the people who knew that there was a God in Israel. You remember Ahaziah in chapter 1? The man who, is it because there is no God in Israel? Where on earth did you? These people know that there is a God in Israel. And indeed that there is no other God in all the earth. And how good it was to come to these little gatherings and and to listen to his word. They loved it. We might describe these modest gatherings uh, like this one in Gilgal where people paid attention to the word of God. We might describe them as a pillar and foundation of the truth in Israel. At a time of confusion... And a time of great foolishness, a time of fear, a time of trouble. Where would a wise person look for answers? To the king? Hardly. We've seen a bit of the king. To the clever people in the universities in Israel? No. To the media? or whatever the equivalent was? I don't think so. The wise person would join one of these gatherings of ordinary people dotted around the country who sat before God's prophet and listened to the word of God. Would that solve all their problems? Would that answer all their questions? Not necessarily. But they would learn what they need to know to live well in their troubled world. And it must have been encouraging, mustn't it, that their numbers were growing. So, a good problem to have and a straightforward solution. Let's see what happened. Two, one man's request. In verse 3, then one of them said to Elisha, be pleased to go with your servants. It's a courteous, respectful Earnest request, please, sir, would you come with us? I wonder why he said that. I can only think that for this man, the time he was able to spend with the man of God was precious. 
He didn't want a working bee to be time that he had to be taken away from Elisha. And again, in verse 3, Elisha answered uh, in the original. It's one word, of course. It's Elisha, you know. I'll go. Verse 4, so he went with them. And I don't want to make too much of this, but it does seem to me that you get a glimpse here of the warm relationship between the disciple and his teacher. And I love that little glimpse. Please, will you come with us? Very different, I'm sure, to the relationships elsewhere in Israel at this time. Like in the palace. I wonder what it would be like to be working in the palace. Don't think it would have been the same as in this group of people. The prophet and his disciples, they just love being together. I wonder whether you've ever had an experience, anything like that. Three, an unexpected accident and the man's distress. Let's follow them down into the Jordan Valley. Verse 4 again, that when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. They got on with the working bee. It was underway. Uh, those of you who have been in working bees, you know what it's like. The timber was being collected. There was probably a lot of noise. There were those men. You know those men who are at working bees who really know how to do things, shouting instructions to everybody else. That's what happens at working bees. Uh, Careful there, don't do that, and bring more. No, no, that's not long enough, or whatever, whatever it is. That kind of no- hubbub of a working bee. But our attention is drawn to one of the men. And I think it is the very one who had urged Elisha to come down with them in verse 3. You see, verse 5 says, but as one, uh, literally it says, as the one uh, was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water. Now, axe head is actually a, a reasonable guess by our translators. Uh, the original just says, the iron fell into the water. Uh, It's not really important what type of implement it was. The simple fact is that it was made of iron. The point being, of course, that the object would quickly sink to the river bed. But also, iron was very expensive. Uh, It was difficult and costly to produce. In 850 BC, an iron axe was seriously high-tech. Uh, This was the Iron Age, but that didn't mean that there was a lot of it about. Uh, It's actually a little bit surprising that this crowd had access to such advanced and valuable equipment, but they did, somehow or other. Uh, It would be hard to come by, and dropping it into the river was no joke. Like dropping the latest model iPhone down the loo or something like that. You know how horrified you are at that point. But it was even worse than that. The man cried out to Elisha, you see in verse 5, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Now again, we've got to go back into the world in which this was, this was happening to, to appreciate how serious this is. God's law, you see, required full restitution of anything borrowed if it was somehow lost or damaged. Now I'm pr- pretty sure this guy was not wealthy, And he could well find himself, as a result of this, facing debt slavery when a person who was unable to pay a debt became a slave to his creditor. This was a serious situation in which he found himself, uh, much more serious than at our first reading. Oh, he dropped an axe head. No, this this really is by no means trivial. And again, I want to suggest that this unusual scene, unusual to our eyes at least, 
I want us to notice that it is movingly familiar. And I want us to sort of feel this. See, this crowd of believers was not immune from life's accidents and troubles. Things don't always go well for people in this group. Accidents happen. Things that may seem relatively trivial can turn out to be very distressing. Life is not always smooth sailing for this group of people. Well, our story ends with four, a surprising work of God. If you read carefully through, more carefully than we've been able to do, the first five chapters of Two Kings, you could make quite a long list of people who cried out in distress to the man of God. And whoever they were, whatever their trouble, they found that the God of Elijah or the God of Elisha, who's the same God, of course, that he cared. And on this occasion, Elisha, the man of God, notice that description of him in verse 6, responded to the desperate man's cry. Verse 6, where did it fall? That's more than one word. He's doing well. And when he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. Now, Elisha's action, throwing that stick in the water, did not of itself cause what happened next. It wasn't a magic trick. But the action made it clear that what happened was a work of the man of God, that is, of God. And as the object, the iron object floated to the surface, Elisha said to the man, take it up or lift it out. So he reached out his hand and took it. <laughs> there you have it. And I suppose that the recovery of the axe head is a bit less remarkable than other extraordinary things that have happened in this book. Uh, you read carefully through chapter 4 sometime, you'll see some astonishing things that happened. But let us not miss the relief that must have swept over the man at that moment, how glad he was that he'd thought of bringing Elisha to the working bee. Interestingly, our narrator does not now tell us about the completion of the building project. The building project wasn't all that important in and of itself. We're left to assume that the work resumed, uh, I presume with the help of the recovered axe, rather carefully wielded from now on, I'm sure, and no doubt the job was completed and there was a useful meeting place for the prophet and his steadily growing number of disciples. But I just want, as we conclude, to try and draw this together and let's take a moment to think about the importance of this unimportant story. We turn our attention from one day long ago in Israel to today, to our world. And it seems to me that there are at least four important things that we should take with us from this story. Think, think about them with me, just four. One, gatherings to hear God's word. In the overwhelming, overwhelmingly troubled nation of Israel, this little story is told precisely because it is not trivial. This gathering of disciples sitting at Elisha's feet, listening to the word of God and other similar gatherings dotted around the country from time to time, more important than kings and palaces and politics and wars. Every one of them 
There may not have been many of them. They may not have been strong. They may not have been influential. But they were the hope of the nation. These were people who had not exchanged the glory of the immortal God for something else. These were the people who had not been so foolish. They mightn't be all that clever, these people, but they really were wise. What about our troubled world today? You can see the, you can see the parallel, can't you? You can see where this is going, but we've got to go there and go there carefully in our thinking. This gathering of disciples, right here now, look around you. This gathering of disciples that meets here week by week in the promised presence of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, meeting together to listen to the word of God. Friends, what we are doing here is not trivial. We gather to sit, so to speak, at Jesus' feet, to learn from him, to bring our concerns to him. And there are similar gatherings dotted around this country and dotted around the world. And I want us to think about this. These gatherings, this gathering, is more important than anything else that is happening in the world today. Can you believe that? You've got to understand a few things to believe that, don't you? There may not be many of us. There aren't, actually. We may even not be strong and influential. We aren't. But here is where you will see the hope of the world. Not because we are better than anyone else, but because we have not exchanged the glory and goodness of God for something else. Have we? How good it is to be here. And I hope, I hope you see that. But it's not just good to be here, it's wise to be here. Listening to the word of God. Second, the love disciples can know. I don't want to exaggerate this point and it really isn't emphasised in our text. But the warmth that I suggested that we can see in the relationship between one of the men and Elisha does remind me of the quality of relationships that can be found in the gatherings of believers today. Friends, you'll be hard-pressed to find anything like it in our world today. And it's very important that we don't simply take it for granted how good it is to be here and how good it is the way in which we treat each other, the way in which we care for each other. Do we always get it right? No, we don't. Do we muck things up from time to time? Yes, we do. But by God's kindness, it really is among believers in Jesus Christ that the troubled relationships that mark our world can be transformed into a kind of love that you won't see anywhere else. And I do hope that is your experience and that you appreciate it that you discover here a kind of humility 
towards one another that you don't find in other places. Kindness, honesty, love. It's brilliant. I remember at one stage um, in my time at Moore College, um, I was talking to one of the um, one of the young men it was who who was in first year and he'd been he'd been at the college for about six months and uh, I, what he had just done well it, it, just before our conversation was that he'd gone back to uh, RPI Hospital which is down the road uh, to his old workplace and walked in and he'd come back to college to this Christian fellowship and he said I'd. I'd forgotten what it was like. So he walked into that work, that workplace where people were, I mean, they weren't the worst people in the world, but they, there wasn't the kindness, there wasn't the love, there wasn't the, there wasn't the humility towards one another that you'll find here, that you'll find in any Christian fellowship. Not perfect, but it really is something that we should appreciate. Third, Priorities in troubled times. See, this little story that we've followed took place in a time of famine. Life was really, really hard. Really hard. And I think we can say that the sons of the prophets had their priorities right, don't you think? To sit before the prophet, to be nourished by the word of God, must not be neglected even in a time of famine. Perhaps they remembered those famous words, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. They got that. My friend, have you got that? They took the necessary steps to ensure that there was a place that that could happen, where more and more people could come. And that's what this story is about. Christian believers today... Friends, let us take careful note of this because we too are living in a challenging time in many, many ways. Let us see that we've got our priorities right. Do you really believe this, that what we are doing here right now and what we do here week by week must not be neglected? It's too important no matter what else is going on for us. Listening to the word of God together is not something we do, provided we haven't got anything better to do. Because we haven't got anything better to do. There isn't anything better to do. In this troubled world, we need, we need the word of God to sustain us. I hope we're clear about that. It's one of the things that uh, ought to trouble us greatly about the Christian culture. And uh, let me assure you, I have not been asked to say this at the Lakes Church, and what I'm about to say is probably not true of the Lakes Church, but it is true of, uh, of lots of us Christians at the moment, where the whole idea of church attendance has gone down on the priority list. Because life is so full and there are so many opportunities, and the statistics are something like, uh, this, this isn't precise, but it's something like this, that these days, the really, really keen Christians, the really committed Christians are in church about three or three out of four times a month. They're the really keen ones. Uh, others, 
Ah, two times a month, that's a committed person. Friends, that's not good enough. It's too important. We must be committed to this gathering to hear the word of God. We need it. And our world needs churches like this. Okay, fourth, last, God's care. You're all sitting there saying, yeah, but what about the axe head? Come on. Well, we have seen that the floating lump of iron was not quite as trivial as it may have seemed to us at a first hearing, but I wonder whether the point of this story being told here in the midst of political turmoil and all the rest that was going on is precisely this. The sovereign power and goodness of God, who does rule over all the turbulence of the world, it is all under his control, but it also extends to the details of the lives of his people. See, well may we say that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. That's true. Marvellously true. Well may we say that Jesus Christ is Lord over all things in heaven and on earth and everywhere else. Absolutely true. We can also say that he cares. He cares about my little, relatively trivial anxieties today. Like a lost axe head. It makes perfect sense, you see, to bring all of my anxieties to him, whatever they are, however small they may appear, however small they may appear to other people. Why? Because he really does care. That's what he's like. He's big enough. So I think it's an important little story, don't you? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this brief story of (laughs) floating axe head. We thank you for the brilliant way in which it just reminds us of the importance of what we are doing here. We thank you for every gathering of your people around this nation and around the world. Meeting today, we pray that you would bless them richly and bless us in our fellowship together, and we pray that what we are as your children will be a shining light in a dark world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.